0: This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic Churches on January sixteenth, two 2022. That's the second Sunday in Ordinary Time. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm here not to preach, but to share some background and context information about this weekend's scriptures, It's gathered from the work of genuine Scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators. I'm not making this stuff up. But fair warning, it is all sifted through my own tiny brain. If you'd like to have your eyes on the Scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship. From the menu that drops down from there, Choose daily readings calendar, and it's pretty easy to find from that. We are now in a short season of ordinary time, which is sandwiched between Christmas and Lent. While only a few weeks in length, it is an important period. We'll see Jesus at the very beginning of His public ministry. We'll hear of Him gathering His first disciples. And finally, we will hear the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's equivalent of what in Matthew is called the Sermon on the Mount. Ordinary time. It's a time for growth and maturation, a time in which we're all called to allow the mystery of Christ to penetrate ever more deeply into our daily lives. The liturgical color for the season is green, symbolic of hope, of life, and growth. On the altar, priests and deacons wear green vestments, The term ordinary time doesn't mean a season of boredom. These weeks are ordinary in the sense of ordinal, that is, time that is numbered. The scripture normally follows this pattern during ordinary time. The first reading and the psalm both come from Hebrew scriptures and are thematically linked to the gospel passage of the day. The second reading comes from the writing of early evangelists, commonly addressing issues in the earliest Christian communities. Typically, we will read from one of these letters for several consecutive weeks. We're now in year C. It's the third in our three-year reading cycle. The gospel we'll hear at weekend Masses will predominantly be from St. Luke. This week is one of the rare exceptions. We read from John's Gospel. Only John gives us this story about Jesus performing the first of what John labels as signs of Jesus' true and full identity. This happens during a wedding feast in the town of Cana. The day's Gospel passage uses a wedding feast as the setting for its message, and we see a marriage setting used here in the book of Isaiah in the first reading. This selection is in the part of the book that scholars note as written after Isaiah's death by persons from his school or tradition of prophecy. Scholars refer to the book in at least two parts, the writing of the prophet himself, and either one or two distinct portions written later. Of the writing by Isaiah's successors, the earliest are referred to as second or Deutero-Isaiah. That is in chapters 40 through 55. These were written during the Babylonian captivity, predicting the release of the nation that would occur very soon thereafter. The concluding chapters, 56 through 66, were written shortly after the return to Judea and deal with difficulties encountered by the people upon their repatriation. The section is known as Trito, or Third Isaiah. It is from this final section that we read at this Mass. The general setting today shows us Jewish people in a state of deep discouragement. Exactly what brought this about is not specified. This given passage is a reminder of the promise of their vindication by the God of Israel. It begins with the use of poetic parallelism. God is recorded as saying, For Zion's sake I will not be silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet. This tells us two things. First, that the God of Israel will remain faithful to the covenant made with the Jewish people. Second, we see that the labels Jerusalem and Zion can be used interchangeably. Through the remaining verses, it becomes clear that these terms are also identified with the entire Jewish nation. So the term that represents the geographically smallest bit, Mount Zion, extends first to the city of Jerusalem, and either of the two names can also denote the entirety of the Jewish nation. After this assurance is stated by God, the voice in the passage changes from God speaking in the first person to what might be interpreted as a universal audience. Now the passage addresses the nation itself with God referred to in the second person. The promises made to the nation were sweeping. They predicted a new creation made from the elements of the old through divine intervention. The mountain, the city, the nation, the people will shine brightly, be called by a new name given directly from God. A new name, and one that comes directly from God, implies a new importance among all creation. The marriage imagery amplifies this. Marriage itself brings about a new reality. Two become one, and in their union they become an instrument of new life. The description of the land, first being barren, can refer to infertility in a marriage. In the culture of the day, this was invariably seen as the fault of the woman. Second, calling its people forsaken can refer to abandonment by one's spouse in a broken marriage. In the patriarchal time of this writing, abandonment of a wife by a husband would leave her destitute. But the Lord promises through Isaiah that all such fruitlessness and sorrow will change. With salvation from and by the Lord, all will be delight. Listen then to this reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. For Zion's sake I will not be silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet. Until her vindication shines forth like the dawn, And her victory like a burning torch. Nations shall behold your vindication, and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, pronounced by the mouth of the Lord. You shall be a glorious crown in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem held by your God. No more shall people call you forsaken, or your land desolate. But you shall be called my delight and your land espoused. For the Lord delights in you and makes your land his spouse. As a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. The Word of the Lord. The final chapters of the book of Isaiah are prophecies about the joy Judeans will experience upon their return to Jerusalem following their 70-year captivity in Babylon. The prophecies contained in Deutero-Isaiah give us God's promise of a new covenant, a nuptial restoration between God and His people. Here Zion, Jerusalem, is personified as a young bride adorned with a royal diadem. That's a crown, folks. Her husband, the Lord, is the bridegroom who gives her a new name. My delight. This reading comes from 3rd Isaiah. It is an assurance that God will indeed keep all those promises. Despite some initial disappointment among the Jews, that it is not instant restoration and prosperity. Unlike the more standard prophetic technique of threatening or predicting catastrophe, here the prophet is encouraging patience among the people and hoping to inspire continued hard work among them so that their sustained efforts might be blessed with success in bringing about the fulfillment of those past promises. We might see a link between the Old Testament passage and the gospel in the third strophe of the responsorial psalm. Worship the Lord in holy attire, it says. To be holy means to be set apart by God. At a wedding, the bride and groom wear holy attire that sets them apart as the couple entering into a new marriage. The bride wears a white gown symbolizing her innocence and purity, while the man wears formal attire to show his devotion to his bride. The lines of this responsorial are all taken from Psalm 96, which is a hymn about the sole divinity of Yahweh. It is proclaiming the God of Israel as the creator of all. The act of creation is the salvation and wondrous deeds, for which all creation, animate and inanimate, owes praise and tribute. I'll read the refrain only at the beginning and the end. Proclaim His marvelous deeds to all the nations. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all you lands. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Announce His salvation day after day. Tell his glory among the nations, among all peoples, his wondrous deeds. Give to the Lord, you families of nations. Give to the Lord glory and praise. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord is king. He governs the people with equity. Proclaim his marvelous deeds to all the nations. Next, we read from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We will be in this letter throughout our short stretch of ordinary time here. You probably remember that Corinth was a very busy, very metropolitan, very prosperous city situated on the eastern side of Greece, just west of Athens. It was a major port city. After Paul established the early Christian community there, It attracted converts from among the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, and pagans. It was a very multicultural group, and this early church struggled becoming and remaining unified because of that great diversity of backgrounds. St. Paul's letter to them was an admonishment for unity. On the surface, the text is a teaching to assure community members that each has a gift and a purpose for which to use that gift. The overwhelming variety of needs in the world is matched by the infinite ability of the one divine spirit to supply the necessary tools to heal brokenness, to reconcile humanity within itself and corporately with its creator. On a personal note, I've had the privilege for several years of working as a teacher for the Catherine of Siena Institute. It's a ministry associated with the Dominican friars of the western United States. The Institute trains Catholics to discern their own primary spiritual gifts. Everybody has their own set. In this way, by knowing, each of the baptized can play his or her greatest possible role in carrying God's mercy, healing, and justice into the world at large. You can read more about this on the web at sienna.org. That's sienna spelled S I E N A dot O R G. Check it out. The list of identifiable gifts of the Spirit is longer than what Paul specifies here and the implications of the gifts go far beyond coaxing the Corinthians to honor one another. The gifts continue to be conveyed, or at least planted as potential, in each of us. The challenge that continues to this day is to properly discern them and to have the courage and persistence to intentionally offer our own gifts to others within this broken world. Now, before I launch into the initial nine-hour seminar on the subject, I suppose I'd better read the selection for this Mass. It is a reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different forms of service, but the same Lord. There are different workings, but the same God who produces all of them every everyone. To each individual, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for some benefit. To one is given through the Spirit the expression of wisdom. To another, the expression of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit to another, mighty deeds, to another, prophecy, to another, discernment of spirits, to another, varieties of tongues, to another, interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit produces all of these, distributing them individually to each person as he wishes. The Word of the Lord. Paul reminds the Corinthians that despite their diversity, God endows each with important gifts, all for the specific purpose of building and maintaining his church. In turn, the church then becomes collectively a better instrument of God's mercy, justice, and evangelization into the world. Did you notice also at the very beginning of the reading a hint about Trinitarian Theology? I'll read the lines again, see if you can pick it out. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different forms of service, but the same Lord. There are different workings, but the same God. Spirit, Lord, Jesus, God, Father. Saint Therese of Lisieux, in her commentary on this passage, identified how God creates a great variety of parts to work together, and then form a much more splendid reality. Her words are as follows. Jesus deigned to teach me this mystery. He set before me the book of nature. I understand how all the flowers he has created are beautiful, how the splendor of the rose and the whiteness of the lily do not take away from the perfume of the violet or the delightful simplicity of the daisy. I understood that if all the flowers wanted to be roses, nature would lose her springtime beauty, and the fields would no longer be decked out with little wild flowers. So it is in the world of souls, Jesus' garden. He willed to create great souls comparable to lilies and roses, but he has created smaller ones and these must be content to be daisies or violets destined to give joy to God's glances when he looks down at his feet. Perfection consists in doing his will, in being what he wills us to be. St. Catherine of Siena, also in regard to the variety of gifts, said this, Be what you are meant to be, and you will set the world on fire. Today's reading from the Gospel of John presents the first of a total of what are seven signs that Jesus shows to the world around him during the course of this, the last of the canonical Gospels to be written there is consensus that it probably reached its final form during the last decade of the first century. Where John uses the word sign and records only seven, the earlier Gospels, from Mark, Matthew, and Luke, use the term miracle and record a great many more such events. But John is not like the other Gospel writers. His purpose clearly is different. Listen to the Gospel for this Mass. It is a reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servers, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washings, each holding twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus told them, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim Then he told them, Draw some out now, and take it to the head waiter. So they took it. And when the head waiter tasted the water that had become wine, without knowing where it came from, although the servers who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and then, when people have drunk freely, an inferior one but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the beginning of his signs at Cana in Galilee, and so revealed his glory, and his disciples began to believe in him. The Gospel of the Lord The exact location of Cana is disputed. There are four prominent candidates Only one is in the lower Galilee region, just a few miles from Nazareth. The others are all located in the northern region of Galilee. You can take your pick. The geographic detail doesn't really matter much in this story. And it's also true that this particular wedding is not very important to the story either. Bride and groom are not named. The groom is mentioned, but only as the one being informed of the appearance of finer wine. The bride isn't mentioned at all. Wedding parties in first century Galilee were quite a different affair from contemporary weddings, especially in their length, typically seven days. For the wedding party to run out of wine so early in the celebration, would have been a great social faux pas. Mary, Jesus, and his disciples are guests at the wedding. Mary, seeing that the wine is running out, comes to Jesus for a resolution. Now, we have no biblical evidence that Mary was an overindulgent tippler, so we can reasonably conclude that she had a concern for the host family, being able to maintain a good standing with their guests. On a deeper level, however, especially given the response of Jesus wherein he addresses her as woman, we can see Mary as a figure of the Jewish nation with whom God seeks an intimate relationship, like that of a marriage. Throughout his gospel, John does not name Mary. For John's purposes, she is not just an individual at a specific place during a particular time she is always more than that. Remembering that wine is often a scriptural shorthand for the presence of joy and love in one's life, we could also see her as representing the Jewish nation. At the time, it is without joy. Mary seeks a resolution to the emptiness of that relationship as represented by the absence of the wine. In calling on her son Jesus, She foreshadows an understanding of his ultimate role in life. In his Gospel, John depicts Mary as the new Eve. Her role in salvation history is pivotal. In the Genesis story, a man and a woman cooperated in bringing sin and death into the world. The converse is true for the redemption of creation. A man and woman cooperate in restoring humanity with God. If Jesus is the new Adam, Mary is the new Eve. In Genesis, Eve is not named until after the fall. When Eve is in full communion with God, she is called simply woman. Twelve times she is referred to in that way. In the context of Genesis, when Jesus calls Mary woman, he is not being disrespectful. He is calling her by her grace-filled name. When we mix into our consideration John's emphasis that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, we can better understand that when Jesus calls Mary a woman, it is really a term of endearment. My hour has not yet come. Is this another seemingly rude response from Jesus? Evidently, Mary disagrees with him about the timing. His mere presence at a public event is enough for her. Nearly all biblical scholars agree that any time Jesus references his hour, he is naming that moment in history when he undergoes his passion and his death leading to his resurrection. Mary is not deterred in her request. She tells the servers, Do whatever he tells you. That seems to be enough for Jesus to take action in that time. Now there were six stone jars there for Jewish ceremonial washings, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Don't let one detail go unnoticed. The jars are empty. The ceremonial cleansing seems to be a now abandoned practice among the Jews, at least those of this household and their guests. This gives us a hint of a breakdown in the fidelity of the Jewish nation in keeping their part of the covenant with God. Notice too that the servants at the command from Jesus fill those jars to the brim. These are people who react to the promise of God's provision with fullness and enthusiasm. Their effort is then met with a more than commensurate response in what Jesus gives in return. So, if this story isn't about that wedding, what's it about? I'm thinking it's about the wine, of course. This superabundance of wine. We're talking 600 bottles here. With all that that symbolizes, is a demonstration of the extravagance of God's provision and the divine willingness to replace dryness from human infidelity toward God with an overflowing generosity that can only bring joy beyond all expectation. That's starting to lean toward a homily. Go to Mass for that. This is enough out of me. I pray your week is fruitful and your eyes are open to the abundance of the fine wine that is God's love in whatever form it comes into your life today. I'll be here next week. I hope you will be too. Tell your friends. Invite them to join us. God bless you.